Hello, I'm Tony Collins and this is the Rugby Reloaded podcast. My guest today is the journalist Hugh Godwin, the rugby union correspondent of the I newspaper, who has just published a new book, The Flying Prince, Alexander Obolensky, the rugby hero who died too young. It's a biography of the Russian prince who earned sporting immortality by scoring two tries for England in its first ever defeat of the All Blacks at Twickenham in 1936. The game is forever known as Obolensky's match. But Hugh's book is much more than an account of that one historic game. As well as a detailed biography of Obolensky's unusual life, it uses that life story to paint a vivid picture of English rugby union during the interwar years. So, welcome to the show, Hugh. Oh, thanks, Tony, and thanks for having me on. I'm really looking forward to... uh having a chat with you about this book. My pleasure. For listeners who aren't familiar with the story of Obolensky's match, um, could you start by outlining what actually happened at Twickenham in January 1936? Yes, 4th of January 1936. So it's the it's the first um, time that England had played the All Blacks for 11 years. It was the third All Blacks tour at that stage. Very rare events in those days. So they were known as the third All Blacks. And on the two previous tours, They'd been over to the UK from New Zealand. Um, they'd carried just about all before them. They'd certainly never been beaten on English soil. They played more than 50 matches on English soil by the time to ca- they came to play England at Twickenham on that Saturday. So the first Saturday of the new year, 1936. Um, so England, I don't think, had huge hopes of beating them. Wales had just beaten the All Blacks, so there was a little chink in the in the mighty team's armour there to go for. But England had. Uh, as was quite usual for those days, uh, a mixture of settled players and then then kind of hot prospects and just hopeful selections by the selectors. And, and one of those was Prince Alexander Robolensky, who was 19 years old in his second year at Oxford University and had this incredible backstory. And they picked him for his debut. England beat New Zealand 13-0, which was an utter hammering, if you, if you extrapolate the scoring values to today. But even in those days, whatever, 13-0 to keep the All Blacks out and to score three tries themselves as they did was an amazing event, absolutely out of the blue and celebrated like mad at Twickenham, as you can imagine, in front of 70,000 people. And just just a match for the ages on its own, even without the incredible story of of Belensky just being thrust in there and scoring two um, memorable, fantastic tries on his debut. Yeah, and there were there were there were very individualistic tries as well. I mean, you could, there's fortunately still Pathé news um, newsreel footage still available, and they were very individual work. They were basically based, and you can tell what a player he was because they're based on his speed and evasive skills. Very much so. So Obolensky, um, coming from a country, for, we'll talk about his background, I'm sure, but coming from Russia, where rugby was not a sport at all. Um, but he grew up in England for, for reasons we'll go into. So his great calling card was pace. His, his great skill, his great asset was huge pace. So he, he's been clocked at the time at 10.2 seconds for the 100 yards, which is pretty swift, as I'm sure you know. Um, and that was during the, the end of his school day. So he, he was picked for that. Um, and he'd been scoring tries by the bucket load at school, which was Trent College. Um, and then on into Oxford University, it was a very good team at the time with several internationals in it. Picked for, picked for pace on the wing. So, especially in those days, the wing was expected to score tries for you. And they, they didn't roam very much. They tended to stick to the wing. He was on the right wing that day. A guy called Hal Sever was on the left wing for England, also making his debut. Um, so, he was he picked for tries, but nobody expected him to score the two he did. So, the first one was a, a real classic 
in and out swerve to get round the, the wing and the fullback of New Zealand. And the second one is the one that appears to have gone down in people's memories a little bit more because of the unorthodox nature of it, um, running from the right wing all the way over to the left wing, which was such an unorthodox piece of play for the, for the wings at the time. Bear in mind, this is an era of rugby where, for example, the fullback hardly ever scored a try. You know, it was almost unheard of. And, and the wing was expected to do a certain thing and the scrum half was expected to do a certain thing and so on and so forth through the team. So, yes, it, the, the, the hallmark of both tries was sheer raw pace. And I think that's what initially, you know, straight away got people really excited about them. Because you'd already done the same thing earlier on in the season when playing for Oxford against the All Blacks, which Oxford narrowly lost, I think, 10-9, uh, where he'd scored another, um, I think, 75-yard try. Presumably that had raised his profile in the eyes of the selectors as well as the as well as the rugby watching public. Oh, definitely. Uh, I mean, one of the challenges of the book really for me was to try and put myself as as a modern day rugby writer to try and put myself in that era and try and work out what the selectors were thinking, what the public were thinking in in a different era of rugby where selections came about in a different way. And obviously, uh, you know, as we all know, the players were all amateur in rugby union. Um, so, for yes, one way of getting selected was to play for Oxford or Cambridge against the touring team, which obviously would no longer happen. That that fix has gone by the board. So Oxford played the All Blacks earlier in this tour and lost by a point, as you say, at Ifley Road. Um, but Oblensky, yes, he scored a try down the touchline. The All Blacks moaned like mad that he he was well in touch. I mean, depending on accounts, they seemed to think it. They seemed to think he was just in touch or or, or virtually out out of the ground and on his way down the road. But um, the, the, the contemporary reports didn't even mention it at all. So, yeah, very good try. And, and just a classic case of, of making your mark against the big team um, for your club side, in effect, which was Oxford University for him at that stage. Um, and, and putting down a marker against the touring side and, and letting the selectors know that he had the quality to, to do it against the best, as we might say these days. And then... Um, and then he went on from that and played. He'd also played against them for the Midland Counties. So he played against the All Blacks twice. Uh, he also had a really good varsity match playing for Oxford against Cambridge, not scoring, but making an incredible cover tackle where he came all the way across the field and bashed uh, John Rawlins of Cambridge into touch. That that gained him another tick in the box, if you like to use modern terminology. Um, and then he had a great final trial for England as well. So in the period of a couple of months while the All Blacks were here touring, going around the UK and Ireland and playing, he, he kept on proving that he was going to be up to the task while still only 19 years old. I guess the fact that he had a distinctively non-English name um, helped a little bit in standing out from the crowd. One of the things that I really enjoyed about the book was that you go right back into his past and the, the, the history of the Obolensky family, that they essentially were members of the Russian court, very high-ranking nobility. I think, was his father part of the Tsar's Imperial Horse Guard or, or something like that? Very unusual very unusual background for, um, for an English rugby player. Yes, I mean, one of the reasons I set out to tell the story in the first place was just that sheer exotic nature of, of his story. It was a very simple question that myself and all, all sorts of sports fans have asked over the years. What, what was this Russian prince doing playing rugby for England in the 1930s? It, it, a complete one-off. Um, no Russian has ever played uh, rugby for England again, you know, before or since. Uh, I think I'm right in saying no Russian has played sport 
for England. I and mean, you may put me straight on that, or somebody might. Um, no, I can't think of anybody now. No, I, no, I, I don't think, think right. so. So yeah, just an utter one-off. Yes, he, he came from, I think the best way of putting it is a noble background. Um, the use of the word prince, you know, indicates certain things in Russian history. Uh, and, and the way you come by that title is is, is complex, shall we say. But yes, he, he, he could trace his family line all the way back to uh, a warlord called Rurik in the ninth century, who, who essentially helped found the modern Russian Empire, uh, way before the Romanovs, for example. Uh, yes, and like an awful lot of other members of those entitled, wealthy, uh, in quotes, noble families, they, the Russian Revolution came along in 1917 and was extremely bad news for them. And the Obolenskys, Alexander Obolenskys family, uh, fled the country in uh, just at the beginning of 1919. That, that was when the civil war was going on in Russia and it was a very bad place to be if you were from one of those noble families, Just to, and that's putting it mildly. So how old was he when he arrived in Britain? Was it four or five, is that right? Uh, he was two years old. So that, uh, again, part of the research was trying to find out the method by which they left. But essentially what we do know is there was a British Royal Navy uh, minesweeper in the Baltic. Uh, this is at the end of 1918. The, the First World War obviously had come to an end uh, in November that year. But there was still a lot going on in the Baltic region that Britain were involved with. They had a minesweeper at Riga in what we now know as Latvia. And it turned into a refugee mission, um, which is a bit of a link with today's stories, you might say, today's history. Um, and quite a few of these Russian nobles boarded this Royal Navy minesweeper and escaped across the Baltic and through to the UK. And his family was on board that boat. And yes, he, he was two years old at the time. Um, with Certainly with his mother, it's never been quite clear if his father was on board or not but uh, it seems probable that he came a little bit later, his father, uh, Sergei, or Serge, as he was known. And they arrived in London. Little Alex, little two-year-old Alex, with his siblings at the time, uh, arrived in January 1919. And when he arrived, again, you trace this in the book, um, when he arrived, he, he kind of very quickly started to follow what would be a traditional path of you know reasonably well-to-do English family at the time, so he he, um, he went to private school and ended up at Trent College, which at the time was a uh, uh, particularly well known as a as a great rugby nursery. Yes, I, th- I think that the story in a nutshell is again like uh, quite a few of these Russian families who were having to flee flee the civil war. They left pretty much all their wealth behind. You know, they, they the classic story of having maybe a Fabergé egg sewn into the hem of your skirt or you know, a few a few jewels at the bottom of your bag. That that really was what most of them were bringing with them. So they, the Obolenskys arrived in London without much money. So they had to do what they could. Uh, they found a couple of benefactors through through their royal connections with the British royal family. Uh, Princess Marie Louise was quite instrumental in that, a relative of Queen Victoria. So they found some funding to start sending the children to schools here. So little Alex went first to a prep school called Ash in Derbyshire and then moved on, as you say, Tony, to Trent College. And uh, they didn't have a fantastic rugby history, Trent, but what they did have at that time was one of those perhaps lucky uh, kind of coincidental development of a really good team who all came together at the same time. 
um, and Obolinski was part of that. And they, I think they pretty quickly realised they had a sprinter on their hands. Then, then they had to teach him how to play rugby. And once they'd done that, nobody could stop him. So he, was, he scored, I, I don't have the figures to have, but he scored something like 40-odd tries in his lower sixth season and, and the same sort of number the following season. And they were all but unbeaten across those two seasons. So, yeah, r- real historic times for Trent College's rugby team. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like he was uh, once he discovered rugby, he just became a natural. He had all the physical talents to to uh, uh, to make a career in the game. The other thing that I thought was um, was very interesting from a cross code perspective was that one of uh, his best friends at Trent College was John Harrison, who was the son of Jack Harrison, who played for Hull FC before the First World War and became uh, and won the Victoria Cross at um, in 1917. And I think it was because the um, Jack Harrison's family were supported by various local charities in Hull that uh, John was able to go to Trent College. Uh, and so he, he had quite an influence on um, uh, on Oberlenski, didn't he? Yes. I mean, John Harrison was his captain um, in the uh, of this sort of team that um, carried all before them, uh, or one of the captains. Uh, Oblensky actually briefly captained the team himself at, at one stage. Um, but wh- what I could gather was that Harrison Jr. was, uh, you know, a leader of one of the leaders of the school, um, one of the main figures there. And, and what what I found poignant, I, I I wouldn't have known as as much about his rugby league history, his his father's rugby league history as you, although I mentioned it in passing in the book. Um, but what I did find really poignant is the number of stories of those boys who were in their teens in the early 1930s who had been affected by war. So, as you, as you say, Jack, Har- Jack Harrison, John's father, was, was, a dec- was decorated and, and had passed away serving in the war. And there just seemed to be so many um, stories of, of that kind, of that calibre. And that's what these boys were growing up in. And they were, they were growing up at a time... Well, they had the shadow of the Great War having gone before them and, and absolutely impacted hugely on their parents' lives. And then there was this gathering storm, as, as, as Winston Churchill called it, of the likelihood of another war coming round the corner. And it just seemed to me that that, that was ever-present for boys of Oblensky's age, of Harrison's age. I, th- I found that a really poignant part of the story. Yeah, I agree. I think that's brought out. The book brings that out. And, and sadly, uh, John Harrison himself was killed at Dunkirk in... In 1941, yeah. So m- m- moving on. So, um, so Alex Oblensky went to Oxford in 1934, and f- pretty quickly won a won a blue at rugby. Oxford in those days, it was something. Well, Cambridge as well. They, it was something of a, of a rugby hothouse, and uh, in a lot of ways, the varsity match was a uh, almost a trial game for for England. Yeah, well, when I was growing up, uh, Tony, there was some vestiges of that still around. You you had fellows like. Rob Andrew and Gavin Hastings playing in the varsity match, but what would that be? The, the mid nineteen eighties, I guess. But it's it's gradually died away uh, from a point in certainly in the nineteen thirties and and before that and after that, um, where a lot of internationals were playing in that match on both sides. Uh, incredible, really. But it, and again, you have to kind of try and put yourself into that era and understand why it was. But um, there were a mixture of the best rugby players at the time were pursuing their careers and therefore would go to Oxford or Cambridge to study and get on with their careers. And, and that's, so they, so they were 
students first, rugby players second, but just happened to be the best rugby players in the world. And then secondly, somebody like Obolensky, who would have been valued as a student at Brasenose College because of his sporting prowess. Um, not necessarily on a career path of any sort, but if you were a spectacularly good rugby player as he was, you were quite likely to go to Oxford or Cambridge and therefore become um, a candidate to play for England or for, or for Scotland or Wales or Ireland um, and, and get on in that way. And, and you'd have a really good class of fixtures. So Oxford University and Cambridge University had fixture lists each season that were the equal of any of the big clubs, Leicester or Sale or any of the other big clubs at the time. Uh, they were playing all the best teams. And as we've already mentioned, that they'd come up again. If the All Blacks came on tour or the Springboks came on tour, they played them as well. So an amazing fixture list that, that we can barely imagine today. The other difference from today, which comes out in the book, is the fact that players swap teams and often played for two, maybe even three teams in the same season. I mean, at one point, I think in 1937, Obolensky plays for Rosslyn Park on one Saturday, then Leicester the next Saturday. Yeah, it took me a while to get my head around this. Uh, obviously, today with with contracts and professionalism and, and open rugby, you know, you sign for one team and that's who you play for at, at club level. Um, so, I, yeah, it took me a little while. But really, once once you've once we've understood that it was amateur rugby and you, you were still essentially playing for fun above all else and not not being paid to play in rugby union, uh, it becomes clearer. And then, yeah, so so you played for Leicester. So I, I did. I, Part of the research was to speak to Leicester and ascertain that they appeared to be a, a club that had a certain number of playing members and then also had invited players, um, such as Obolensky. So you, out of the blue, someone like him, you know, a bit of a star name at the time, even, even very early in his life, uh, would, would appear in the Leicester team without much warning because he'd been invited to play. And then it was purely a case of... Um, Turning up, pitching up, pulling on the jersey and playing. That was all there was to it. Uh, so that, so Leicester were one of the clubs who were well known for doing that. So that there are kind of semi-barbarians, you might call them, half, halfway beat to being a completely invitational team. Yeah, because he had no direct connection with the town of Leicester or any other relationship to it, did he? Basically, they, I suppose you could say, they headhunted him. Yeah, I think that would be a good way of putting it. I couldn't find any notes of the exact contact. So it would have been the secretary at Leicester um, would have made a contact. They, they, I think they like, I mean, the other club we played a lot for was Rosslyn Park and they had a, a dedicated person on their committee who would liaise with the public schools. And, and again, bearing in mind, there's no academies in those days. There's no, no professional clubs. So where were your players going to come from? They were going to come from your first-hand contacts or, or from the schools that you had links with. Um, so at Rosslyn Park, John Harrison, who we've already mentioned, he went there from Trent College to play. And I think it's very simple to imagine Harrison contacting Obolensky and saying, do you fancy coming and playing for Rosslyn Park? And Obo saying, yeah, I'll give that, I'll give that a go. I'll be down up and down on the train from Oxford and playing for Rosslyn Park. Um, in, in sort of fits and starts, as you pointed out, it, he'd have a run of games for Rosslyn Park if it suited him, if it fitted around his work at Oxford. Um, or he had a little run of games for Leicester in one season as time went on um, and eventually accumulated, I think, about 40, I've got it here, 41 appearances for Rosslyn Park and Leicester combined and 44 appearances for Oxford University. So that kind of gives you an idea of how he split his time during his university years. I thought one of the most interesting things about the book was the discussion that you have about 
uh, Obolensky's eligibility for England because obviously this is a, a, a very current issue given uh, the fact that World Rugby has recently changed the, uh, the um, national qualification system. His case was discussed by the RFU before he was selected. And you, you've got this great story where before the um, before the New Zealand match, he's introduced to the Prince of Wales, who asks him, by what right do you have to play for England? Although it's different in those days, it's still an issue that is very much at the heart of international rugby, isn't it? Yeah, so I, mean, I summarised it in the book as as soon as England played Scotland in 1871, which is generally regarded as the first proper international rugby match, as soon as you decided to pick teams based on borders, the question became, which side are you on? Literally, figuratively, spiritually, whose side are you on? Which side are you going to go for? As soon as you say, right, here's it, the England team, and we're playing against that team, which is Scotland, you then have to decide, well, how do you actually qualify for those teams? And that, that has been a, a, a nest of vipers ever since, hasn't it? Because what, how do you decide anybody's nationality? And you'll know this better than anybody, Tony, but an added complication is that we do play as England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland in rugby union. So that throws up obvious complications straight away, particularly with the Ireland team in terms of geopolitics and and passports and any other qualification you care to name. So, yeah, it's been a, it's been a running sore, you might say, for rugby. Um, so we, we, they've striven again and again over the years to decide exactly how you qualify for a team or don't qualify for a team. In, in the 1930s, in Obolensky's day, as far as I can gather, nothing was written down. So you were fairly free to pick a country that you had an attachment to, which generally was by birth or through your parents or grandparents. And there was a, a fair amount of, of what you might call swapping around of teams or movement across borders. An awful lot of players from New Zealand, South Africa and Australia were playing for England and Scotland and vice versa. So you had Scots in the New Zealand team and New Zealanders in the Scotland team and Australians in the Scotland team in that era. Um, but Obolensky sat outside that nice, easy, cosy British Empire qualification uh, again because he was a one-off. So, so hang on, we've got this Russian prince. Does he qualify for England? Well, well there aren't any rules written down. So, how are we going to decide if he qualifies or not? It, it, it was a big story at the time. Yeah, and it's quite interesting. I think that um, he was, the, as far as I can tell. Um, he was the only person that the RFU ever discussed in terms of eligibility, despite the fact that earlier on in the 1930s, the England captain, um, Tuppy Owen Smith, was actually a South African, born and bred in South Africa. And you would have thought that actually, because Obolensky had followed what was really a very typical uh, British upbringing by that point, through school and university and everything, then it, it wouldn't have been a question. So I, I, I did find it fascinating to wonder why the RFU had chosen to discuss his eligibility, but ne- it never occurred to them to to discuss, to, to discuss anybody else's. Well, you're, you're quite right. Yeah, Toppy Owen Smith was a South African um, who had followed that route. You know, he was studying in, in England and played cricket to a great level and rugby to a great level and, and captained England, but it was essentially a South African. I, I, I th- there wasn't much written down as to why they took that approach with Obolensky even to the extent of having a vote on his eligibility the, the day before he played in the final England trial, which I hadn't realised until uh, examining the RFU minutes for this book. 
um, they, they put up a motion that he wasn't qualified for England until he was naturalised as the British subject um, uh, and, and voted on it. And if they voted against him, he wouldn't have played, I assume he wouldn't have played in the final trial. He certainly wouldn't have played against New Zealand and everything we're talking about might never have happened. It's incredible, really. I was, I was shocked. So it, I couldn't find detailed notes of why they took that approach, whether it was a serious attempt to block him or whether it was to talk the issue through and therefore the motion was put up to enable them to talk it through. It wasn't quite clear. You, you can imagine, though, that it was a mixture of a lack of precedent that they just didn't know what to do about a Russian, whereas they did know what to do about the British Empire and, and that was regarded as being, I would imagine, quite straightforward. You know, South Africans, New Zealanders, Australians playing for British teams was not regarded as anything unusual and, and, and was just the dumb thing. And without anything actually written down in terms of any regulations, as World Rugby do now have, as you said, they've got quite complicated regulations on how you qualify and re-qualify for nations. Uh, I think they essentially had to make it up as they went along. And, and the case of Oblensky was a one-off. Now, you could extrapolate and imagine that there may have been forces of um, a, a sinister nature, maybe, uh, that the kind of people on the RFU committee who, who were steeped in rugby, you know, the, the classic case of, in quotes, rugby men, as they would have been called at the time, uh, some of whom had served in the Great War, um, themselves were probably, I think it would be fair to say they'd be quite proprietorial about the England team and um, protecting the England team and looking after it. So whether they, whether there was an element of wanting to keep um, the England team for the English or at least for the Empire, that that you could understand being a possible motivation for at least some of the RFU committee. But they did vote the motion down. So. He wasn't naturalised as a British subject when he played in the great match against New Zealand. That came along a matter of months later, and he ended up serving in the Royal Air Force, which caused even more problems. But they did permit him to play for England. So I guess if your argument is that going to school in England all your life is enough to prove that you are uh, qualified for the England team, then he had done that. If you were going to say you should be born in England to play for England, then he had not done that. So it's, it's a debate that's that was absolutely rife then and, and, and still is today. Yeah, and I think, you, I think you're right. I think it's probably down to the fact that anybody who was born in the British Empire was could be claimed by any of the home nations. But being born outside was slightly more of a problem. I think one of the, one of the things that, that's very striking about the book is that it's not a traditional player biography by by which I mean and no offence to anybody else who, who's written player biographies that there's always a danger that they tend to collapse into just match by match account of a player's career but I think this this is very different from what we've just been discussing and also I think in terms of the the research that was needed and I think one of the um, w one of the places where that really um, uh, comes to the fore is when you're discussing Obolensky's death in a flying accident because certainly I know from um 
uh, from listening to what people have said, there was never a clear account of what happened uh, that had been kind of recorded, at least outside of the RAF uh, official records. But you actually went back and looked through the records and established a pretty... Uh, a pretty comprehensive view of what actually happened to him when he uh, in the the fatal accident that he was involved in. Yes, I I think the description pretty comprehensive is right. I, I certainly did my best to find all the information that exists. I would say, having written the book and having looked into it as much as I possibly could, I I would say there's still a little room for doubt. So to, to try and cut the story sh- short, that of an awful lot of research that was done. Um, there is an accident record file, an RAF um, file relating to his accident that killed him, and that exists in the National Archives at Kew. And, and may I just say as a sideline, I think that the, the archives and libraries that we have access to in this country, this book opened my eyes to the absolute brilliance and the, the treasures and the wonders of the archives we hold, and the National Archives at Kew is an example of that. So... So that yeah, there's an accident record file. Anybody who had a, a fatal accident, the RAF, that there tended to be an inquiry as to what had happened, especially in the early days of the war, which is when Ovalensky was killed. Um, but even now, where are we? Eighty-one years on from his accident, parts of that file are still redacted. And a very interesting part of the research was I had to end up making freedom of information requests to find out a little bit more to get a little bit more of that file opened up um, as, as a matter of public record, not just to me, obviously, but to the, it's open to the public. Uh, but some of it is still redacted. So there is still a tiny little bit of doubt as to the precise nature of his accident. But um, th- that element of research was what it was a great appeal to me. So it, the entire era between the two um, wars, between the First World War and the Second World War, the Russian Revolution, their civil war, um, everything that went on in, in rugby and society through all those years was a great, great interest to me to research and, and finding out about his accident was part of it. Uh, but it wasn't an easy business, I can tell you that. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so just to um, move on, because we're running out of time, his legacy, it, he's a very interesting player that, although he didn't have a long international career, nevertheless, his name still lives on. I mean, there's a couple of awards that are named after him. Um, you know, there's memorials and tributes. I mean, there's one of the uh, one of the rooms at Twickenham is uh, named after him. Uh, why do you think he's so well remembered? Uh, what 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 has given him that tremendous legacy that you know has lasted almost ninety years since the famous match? I think there's a number of factors, Tony. One big factor was the newsreel film of the match. So they had live radio coverage in those days on the BBC. Um, all day long, you'd listen to music on the BBC, apart from when they threw a bit of sport in, if you were really lucky on a Saturday afternoon, very occasionally. And sometimes it was sort of halves of matches and, you know, just bits and bobs. Looking back at old copies of Radio Times, I, I realised how little sport there, there was to consume live. But around that time in the 1920s and certainly in the 1930s, the newsreel film really ratcheted up in its quality and that match between England and New Zealand was was such a big one that they had more than one camera there recorded in the game and the quality of the footage of his tries was really really good and people were queuing around the blocks in days afterwards to go to the cinema and watch the newsreel which was a collection of short reports of the news of the day 
uh, among which was the England New Zealand match. So straight away you had a, a visual documentary record that showed how brilliant these tries were, and and that was for perpetuity. So on top of the fantastic newspaper coverage, and then anybody who listened to the live radio coverage, you had this visual representation of what he'd done. And I, I think that has been such a help. So down the years, every time New Zealand came on tour, all anybody wanted to remember and was likely to remember was Obolensky's match. So that, that was a big help. And then, I mean, the reason I decided to do the book in the first place, it was just such an unusual story, wasn't it? That just, just a, a, an utter one-off, like I keep using that phrase, but it was a Russian prince playing rugby for England. Never, nothing, we haven't seen the like of it before or since. Really unusual. Um, a lot of pathos in the story. Uh, he was a real party animal. Was, that was the story kind of handed down through the ages, but that wasn't anything like the full story. He was absolutely tortured by a lack of money during his university years. And then, of course, the third element was his horrible, untimely death, having joined the RAF bringing it all to a halt and, and certainly has that an element of the James Dean story, you know, live fast, die young and, and will be forever remembered for his youth, for his vivacity, for his pace, for his talent on the rugby field. And that's just what is left fixed in people's minds because he didn't live on to create a further legacy. So I, I, from a rugby point of view, just to bring it back to the rugby, maybe finally, what he did on that day was in a great team sport he proved the value of individualism I think people just love that I think people have always grasped onto the idea whether they like rugby or not I think you can do it if you love rugby and, and even if you know nothing about rugby is to grasp onto the fact that you throw the ball to a guy with immense pace and a sidestep and a will to beat his opposite player and magic can happen and that's what happened that's another reason why people remember him and I think the book will help to keep the memory alive for, for, for much longer as well. So uh, thanks very much, Hugh. That was absolutely fascinating. Just to remind listeners, the book is called The Flying Prince, Alexander Obolensky, The Rugby Hero Who Died Too Young by Hugh Godwin, and it's published by Hodder and Stoughton. You can find a link to the book on my webpage, as well as to the Pathé News film of Obolensky's match. And you can also follow Hugh on Twitter at HughGodwin underscore. And, as I'm sure you know, my website is www.rugbyreloaded.com where you can find a complete archive of episodes about the history of rugby and the other football codes. So, until next time, thanks for listening.